You're listening to the Wild Talk podcast, the place to be for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help you spend more time enjoying the natural world. Wild Talk is brought to you by awildlife.co.uk. And this is Helen wishing you a warm welcome to this week's Wild Talk episode. As towns and cities have grown, wildlife's become more urbanised, especially birds. There's more bird life in urban areas than you think. You simply need to be aware of the potential and keep a lookout. In this Wild Talk episode, you'll find out how you can see more birds in cities, towns and gardens, as I interview David Lindo, otherwise known as the Urban Birder. David's message is best illustrated by his catchphrase, look up. In an urban environment where we're all increasingly looking down at our mobile phones, his message is a much-needed reminder to be aware of your surroundings so you don't miss out on the remarkable things around you. Nature in your city or town might only be a glance away. David Lindo, the urban birder, travels the world encouraging people to go outside to enjoy urban birds. Through his TV appearances, writing, talks and tours, David inspires people to look at their urban surroundings with fresh eyes and promotes an appreciation for the birds that share our urban lives. David's been quoted as saying, All we have to do is open our eyes, ears, hearts and minds and soon we'll be linked with the nature around us which illustrates beautifully his message that wildlife in urban areas is accessible and easy to engage with. David Lindo, welcome to Wild Talk. So David, I'm going to ask the most obvious question first. What's an urban birder? Um, An urban birder basically is someone who watches birds in urban areas. It basically does what it says in the tin, really. But there's no kind of demarcation at all, Helen. I mean, at the end of the day, watching birds in urban areas, for me, is the same as watching birds in the middle of nowhere because birds are everywhere. And once you get up the idea that birds do exist in areas that you wouldn't expect them to, then you'll start seeing them. So in other words, you have to look at an urban environment, but try and look at it as how a bird would see it. So Instead of seeing loads of buildings and cityscapes, think of it as scattered woodlands and cliffs because a lot of the tall buildings are cliffs. And also when you go to your local park, um, there's habitats within the park, albeit very small, but there's still habitats. So you might have, for example, a small reed bed, might be a, a pond or a lake. You know, those are habitats that birds occur in and you'll get a tiny sliver of the bird life you get in a normal rural sort of background within this particular vista. Wow, I love that comparison of high-rise buildings with cliffs. Do we get many birds on our high-rise buildings? Well, there's certain species that use high-rise buildings. And when I say high-rise buildings, the ones that are just total glass, sheer glass, they're no good to a lot of things really. But the um, a lot of the older buildings or the ones that are more imaginatively designed designed with ledges and, and, and areas that birds can, and other wildlife can actually perch or nest in. They're the ones that are, are useful and they're predominantly used by birds of prey. It's worked very well for peregrines because in Britain, for example, uh, just after World War II, peregrine population in the UK was at an all-time low, probably about 40 or 50 pairs in the whole country. But since then and since D 
DDT was banned because DDT during the 50s and 60s got into the food chain and the peregrines ate birds uh, affected with this uh, pesticide and it made the peregrines lay eggs that were very thin, which obviously made their population chances for growing very, very slim. But when that was all banned, they started to increase and they discovered cities. And now we've got a situation where I think there's about 1,500 pairs in the UK and certainly in London, there's roughly 24 pairs nesting in London, in the city of London, which is incredible. So it shows that, you know, once these birds uh, recognize the, the available habitat or the new habitat, they move in. Um, I also find high-rise buildings quite good to observe birds from. Um, I love standing on top of roofs. And no matter where I am in the world, I like to stand on top of a roof to see what flies over. Again, in London, I do a, uh, a migration watch every spring and autumn where we turn up on top of Tower 42, which is near Liverpool Street in the financial district. And we stand on the roof uh, for four hours or so in the hope of seeing birds of prey passing over. And we have seen over the years some really interesting sights. Um, uh, also, you, you see this, this general city vista, which is amazing. Every day we go there, we will see peregrines. I mean, you can see up to six territories from that building. So we've seen all sorts of things happen. You see a peregrine standing in an aerial, but we've also seen them packing pigeons and things. So it's been quite a dramatic thing at times as well to watch them. But on top of that, we've seen a whole array of birds of prey, buzzards, uh, red kite, marsh harrier and hen harrier fly over, plus kestrel on occasion. Kestrels are quite rare, actually, in central London. A uh, hobby... Um, so we've seen a whole range of the birds of prey that you can possibly see in the UK right on top of the building. So it just shows you that anything could turn up anywhere at any time. And it's always worth looking up because you never know what's flying over your head. David, our listeners will have heard bird watchers being called twitchers. So what's the difference between an urban birder and a twitcher? Twitchers are people who tend to keep a list of birds that they've seen. And as soon as they hear of something really rare they rush off to to ticket. Basically, it's the pursuit of rare birds to add to your list. Birders are more uh, inclined to have an area that they have as a patch, local patch. They tend not to be off rushing after rare birds. But having said that, birders twitch and twitch is bird. So there's no nothing wrong with either. I personally feel that it's always good to start off as being a birder so you learn about common birds and what have you. You appreciate the common birds. And then you may sort of naturally graduate into looking for rarer birds because you've seen most of the common birds. I mean, that's how I do it, but some people tend to do it the other way around. So that's fine. But that's the difference. So I, um, I don't call myself a twitcher. I'm a birder. So whenever anyone calls me a twitcher, I say, well, actually, I'm not. I'm a birder, but I do twitch occasionally. Brilliant. So how did you get into bird watching? That's a good question. I don't really know. I think I always cite a previous life, to be honest. I was born into a black Irish neighborhood in northwest London. Um, none of my friends, family, or anyone associated with them or me had an interest in it at all. But I was born with this innate interest in natural history, which started off with uh, an interest in insects, and it developed from that into birds. And by the age of eight, I had sort of read as much as I could and had become a veritable walking encyclopedia on birds of Britain, Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. I knew all of them by name, scientific name. I knew everything in terms of what they looked like and all the plumages. 
even though I'd only seen a tiny fraction of them. I just had this interest and it kind of developed and it's still developing to this day. So could people develop an interest in birds by watching birds in their gardens? What kind of birds could they see in their gardens? In Britain, um, you have, or we have an array of birds that can be seen. And it also depends on where you live in the country as well. But generally, um, you'll see things like blackbirds, uh, you'll have blue tits and great tits and greenfinches and chaffinches and jays, magpies and crows. And if you look up uh, during the summer, you might see swifts. Um, in the winter, you may see one or two gulls flying over. Again, it depends on where you are in the country. But if you want to attract wildlife and birds to your garden, try and have at least a small area which you dedicate to being taken over by the wilds and allow weeds to grow to, you know, to provide food for insects that will in turn provide food for birds. So, you know, it's a, ro- a whole range of things that can be seen in your garden. And also it depends on what your garden's like. If your garden's completely patched over, then, you know, you may not get as much as if it would if you had a lawn and some bushes and trees and things like that. And what's the best way to identify them? Is a guidebook the best way or is there an app for your mobile phone? Um, I think um, the best for me, I'm old school though, I'd rather get a guide. Um, I always tell beginner bird watchers not to worry too much about fretting of the ID. Um, I started my birding not knowing anything, so I just watched birds, simple as that, and I enjoyed them for what they were. And eventually, over a period of time, and via osmosis, you begin to realize, oh, that's a chaffinch, oh, that's a sparrow. And you kind of realize what's what's going on. I think that's a really nice way of learning because people often feel, especially in this day and age, where you need to uh, reach a certain level. You have to see a certain amount of species and all this sort of stuff. And that doesn't, in my world, exist. I think it's all about what you want to do and how far you want to take it. But I think, for me, a book um, is a nice way of getting yourself introduced Two birds, get yourself a nice, you know, garden bird book, have it by your kitchen window, uh, put out food and just see what comes to your garden and see if you can recognize it. You can recognize birds by their calls and songs. Um, some birds have very distinctive calls, uh, and songs. I think most people, whether they know it or not, um, are familiar with things like blackbirds singing and even robins singing. And even, you know, experts like myself, we get confused or thrown even now, by various birds. I mean, it's often said that if you walk through a woodland um, and you hear a call you don't know, nine times out of ten, it'd be a great tit. So, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to know the nuances of some of the species. A great way of learning um, is to join a group and have someone actually point things out for you. Um, go on a dawn course walk, even, Um and listen to the chorus of calls and songs because uh, as a as a as a spectacle it's an amazing thing to hear anyway but over a period of time when you listen to bird song especially in the woods or even in the back garden you begin to pick out the elements it's like listening to a, an orchestra you pick out the trombone you pick out the violin eventually you pick out the individual songsters and you can work out who's who So as well as the birds that you've already mentioned, I've also heard that in the UK, we also have parakeets. How did that happen and where are they? Parakeets, um, they are two species of parakeet that actually reside in Britain in a wild state. One is called the monk parakeet. Uh, The monk parakeet is actually not very common at all. I think 
it's basically down to a couple of handfuls of, uh, of, of birds because it's been um, culled, um, for want of a better word, to prevent it actually spreading. It was a South American bird, um, and it's the only parrot in the world that builds its own nest. But in the areas where it comes from, such as Argentina, um, they build these massive nests, colonial nests, that are on top of uh, telegraph masts and things like that. And they're the size of a small car and the weight of a small car, and they've been known to collapse. And I think people will be worried about that happening you know, elsewhere. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite common in places like Barcelona. But the main um, parakeet is the uh, rose-ringed parakeet or ring-necked parakeet, um, initially from, or originally from, from India and also parts of Western, or should I say Eastern Africa. They have been around for some time and it's, it's funny, people have only began to notice them within the last 20 years or so. Um, there's been a lot of theories and myths about how they came to be. And my favourite um, is the Jimi Hendrix standing on Carnaby Street in 1969 with Adam and Eve and he lets both of them go and 40 years later there's 40,000 parakeets in London. I think one of the most famous myths is the fact that um, they escaped from the um, African Queen set, the film. That was, um, I think, shot in Pinewood. Or, I can't remember the studio it was, but that's, that's another theory. But in reality, they've been around for a long, long time. The first breeding record was, in fact, in Great Yarmouth in, I believe, 1853. And there was a thriving colony in North Kent, in North Fleet, I think it is. Uh, I think it was even. And that was in the late 1800s. And they are effectively um, escaped pets that have proliferated in the last 40 years or 50 years. The reason why they are so successful is that when you think of parrots, you think that they are tropical birds and they have to live in jungles and stuff. But parrots are a really diverse family. Some parrots species live in the equivalents of the alpine um, habitat. I mean, for example, there's a bird called a kia found in New Zealand, but that's found up in the, in the mountains, you know, in the freezing cold. The rose-winged parakeet in its range can be found up to 4,000 feet up in the uh, Himalayas. So the weather here is a walk in the park, so to speak. And plus, being a nation of animal lovers, we feed our birds and they've taken full advantage of that. That's an amazing story about Jimi Hendrix. Are the parakeets just in the southeast or are they all over? Well, they were initially um, London, South London, really, um, but they've spread. Um, there's records now even as far north as Scotland. So they are slowly spreading north. I think the biggest fear was that they'd be raiding fruit farms because that's what they tend to do in their native lands. But I think that's not happened so much. It's more a case of them taking advantage of the food that we put out for birds in general. And staying on that point, what's the best way for us to look after garden birds? Are there different ways for us to look after them for the different seasons? I think there should be an overall plan, which is to make your garden as hospitable for wildlife as possible, full stop. So, you know, instead of having patios and sterile wooden fencing, you know, it'd be nice to have a hedge, like in the old days, that separated yourself from your neighbour. And the hedge that is hopefully a, a, a native hedge and also a native vegetation, because once you start planting a lot of ornamental um, flora, um, it doesn't attract the, the, the insects, whereas the native flora does. So try to do that natural thing, as well as if you can't do that, at least have a patch of your garden given over to nature and just left to grow wild, because then that attracts insects and 
there's a mosaic of habitat around the whole of the country as opposed to just patches here and there. Aside from that and on top of that, you could also put out food for birds and it's you know it's a good thing to do all year round actually with less during the summer but all all year round and make sure you clean your food utensils or apparatus you use on a regular basis to help stop diseases but the good thing about that is that once you put food out um you may sometimes despair but no birds are coming and that's because well that could be for two reasons firstly um if you just only just put your food out last week um the birds may not have discovered it yet because Small garden birds tend to have territories and they tend to move uh, around in a circuit. And if they come across your food during that circuit, then that will become part of the circuit. And then once you found, once they found the food source, then they'll use it and they'll use it according to how, how much they need it. If they can get natural food, then they'll use the natural sources more than what they will use your stuff. But as soon as the hard weather comes in, then they'll be in your garden, hopefully. And I think the final thing is to try and provide nesting opportunities. So put up nest boxes, not just for for robins and things like that, but also to put out nest boxes for birds like house martins and swifts. They're in dire need of holes because a lot of the new architecture, unfortunately, does not cater for any kind of wildlife to nest in there at all. There's no holes or crevices anywhere. So, you know, it'd be good to do that as well. So the boxes for house martins, do they differ to the boxes for robins then? They do. Boxes for robins are your classic nest box with a a sort of a square opening. And then you've got the other nest boxes for blue tits and other birds, which are circles. And you can get different sizes for different species, whereas uh, robins like to nest in open-fronted boxes, as they call them. The um, house martin and swift boxes are actually specially designed. Um, Swifts Sorry, house martins make a, a, a nest which is a, a cup with a hole in it, and it's mud, basically. It's made of mud. And there's one thing that is in short supply in Britain, and that's mud, it seems. I mean, birds uh, that try to build nests often cannot find the mud. And if they do, the modern housing hasn't got, they've got paint on them that doesn't allow the mud to stick. Swifts um, are summer visiting um, birds that only hang out in Britain for literally three or four months, and then they're gone. And they're amazing because they spend up to four years in the air um, before actually touching any surface. And even then, it's not the ground. It's actually clinging onto a wall to get into a hole in a crevice in a building. But again, because of new buildings with no holes, they're finding it difficult to find nesting areas. So if you buy these specially made boxes with a slit that they can fly into um, and put one or two up on your, your house, then that would be a great help to the swift population. And is it the same advice for swallows as well? House martins are one thing. Swallows um, are not in as much danger uh, uh, in terms of uh, decreasing as house martins and swifts. And swallows tend to, I mean, they historically use farm buildings and, you know, people's outhouses and they they, they don't seem to be in, in any short supply. I mean, they tend to like flying into a building and building their nests in rafters or, you know, on the edges of, of ledges and stuff. So, so long as they got access and they're, they're fine. But swallows are more, it's certainly in Britain, they're more rural birds. They tend not to be nesting in the heart of uh, urbanity. However, go elsewhere in the world and you find them nesting right in the centre of cities. So it's quite interesting how birds' behaviour changes where you go in the world. So you've mentioned a few conservation concerns there. What are the important conservation issues for UK birds? 
Well, there's, you know, there's lots of issues. I mean, the biggest, I think, is habitat destruction. I think the fact that, you know, the farming methods in this country is very intense has meant that a lot of our farmland birds have decreased phenomenally. Um, things like skylark, you know, have gone totally downwards, as have lapwings. Nightingale's another one. And turtle dove has, you know, I think they say that within the next 25 years, there's a possibility of it becoming extinct. I only see one turtle dove a year on average in the UK. Part of their problem, and part of all these birds' problems, especially the ones that migrate, is not just what happens when they get here in terms of no habitat, but also on their journey. A lot of these birds, like the turtle dove, fly across the Mediterranean where they get shot or you know, killed in horrible ways. And then they got to fly across an ever-increasing, in terms of size, Sahara, and then they end up in their wintering quarters, which may or may not be there. So there's, there's danger all, all around, which is, which is pretty sad. But I think one of the main problems we have is uh, habitat destruction. Hunting is another issue. Uh, there's a couple of species like, for example, the hen harrier, a bird which is such a beautiful bird of prey. The males are, are gray, beautiful gray with black wingtips, and the females are brown. And um, in, the, in England, they've reduced... I think the population is probably down to a few pairs where there should be up to 300 pairs because there's enough habitat for it. But they're killed by, by gamekeepers who feel that they are threatening the existence of their red grouse. So it's, you know, there's lots of tricky areas there as well. So hunting of raptors is still a problem in this country. And even down to the, an urban scenario and garden birds, people are complaining that there's not enough you know, small birds anymore. And they're blaming sparrowhawks and magpies that are seemingly increasing. But the the real issue is not those predators. It's in fact the fact that there's no habitat for these birds, the small birds to be nesting and feeding in people's gardens. House sparrows is a classic example. In, in I think in the whole of the UK, they've diminished by about 80%. And in central London, they're, they're a very rare bird now. And part, part of the reason is the fact that there's a lack of insects. They, even though they're seed-eating birds, they eat insects um, or they capture insects to feed their young um, in the first stage of their life. And if there's not enough insects to feed their young, they won't have the protein needed to survive the first year. And on top of that, they're losing their habitat because people are cutting down hedgerows where they used to nest. And they don't move around much either. So that's why they don't seem to spread into other areas. And that brings me on to your catchphrase, look up. I think that's an amazing catchphrase because if we spend so much of our time these days walking around looking at our mobile phones when all we might need to do is simply look up and we might see nature anywhere really. Yeah and you could actually watch that and actually prove that to yourself by looking down. If you are if you're in a tall building just look down on the people walking around and they're all looking level or down or at themselves in shop windows to make sure they're dressed properly. It's how life is, I suppose. People in urban areas, they think that wildlife only occurs in the middle of uh, the countryside, away from prying eyes, or on David Attenborough programs, and nowhere in between. So it's quite surprising for them when you know someone like me takes them out for a walk around their neighbourhood and shows them an array of species that they never even knew existed. And it's really nice when weeks or months later you get an email sent to you and it says, you know, oh my God, I saw... You know, a goldfinch in my garden, I didn't realize they exist, and now I've got them. It's just a question of opening eyes and getting people to realize that, you know, conservation starts 
from our doorsteps. The conservation starts from the window ledge. The flower pot on your window ledge somehow is connected eventually to the Amazon. And once you kind of think of it in those terms, you run, you'll understand that you need to conserve stuff in urban areas to then understand about conserving stuff elsewhere. And urban areas are very important because there's certain species of birds, for example, that are quite common in urban areas or easier to see in urban areas than it would be in the rural areas. Um, and if we can protect those species, then, you know, we're doing a good job. Well, you've been through some really good tips for us today. But if there was just three pieces of advice that you'd give to someone who wanted to start watching more birds, what would they be? The first thing is, it's all about enjoying yourself. Don't feel pressure that you need to learn this, that and the other or be as good as whatever, because that doesn't exist. It's all about enjoying yourself and it's all about watching and enjoying birds and listening to them as well. Um, I think another tip would be once you kind of realize that you really want to learn more about birds um, is to join a group. The RSPB have many local groups all, all over the country. So you can join a group and, and be with people like yourself um, that are learning and be with someone or have a group leader that knows a little bit more so they can teach you. And I think the third thing is that, um, you know, to buy a nice field guide so you have it in your pocket so you can actually refer to it. And also, get yourself a pair of binoculars. With binoculars, there's one thing um, I would suggest, and that is if you are going to get binoculars, don't or try not to get those really cheap binoculars you get in Sunday subs for like 20 quid. They're just not worth the money because at the end of the day, optically, they're not very good and they may actually affect your eyes eventually. Um, it's worth spending a little bit to get a decent pair and then that pair of binoculars will last you for a while as opposed to, you know, a few months and then you, you know, have to get a new pair because that one's fallen apart. You know, it's good to get something that will last a bit longer and has a bit more quality in terms of the optics. And what projects are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm actually having a quiet time. I, I Last year, I, I was behind the vote for Britain's National Bird and the robin came up on top. We had nearly a quarter of a million people vote on that, which was amazing. And plus the media absolutely loved it. And also within the top 10 birds, or the last 10 birds to be voted on was the hen harrier, the species I told you about before, which is in grave danger in the UK or in England, certainly. Most people didn't know what hen harrier was. And I'd imagine that several million people were Googling hen harrier. So I think that's really helped this profile. So I'm kind of taking it a little bit more easy now. I'm, I'm just, I've uh, got a few writing projects. My whole job, as it were, is still to go around as, as far as I can go and to see as many people as I can go, to see, should I say, to talk about getting people engaged uh, with urban wildlife. So that's an ongoing project. But aside from that, I'm just doing my writing and leading my tours. And where's the best place for people to find you online? Is it your website, Facebook, Twitter? Um, I've got a Twitter account, which is The Urban Birder, or at The Urban Birder. And I've also got a Facebook account, which is the Urban Birder as well, which you can come to. And that gives news all around the world, really, about urban birds. And, you know, hopefully we'll engage people and get people interested. So thanks for your time today, David. They were really amazing tips and lots of advice on how we can pay more attention to the birds around us and the wildlife around us. So thank you very, very much. No problem, Helen. Once again, a big thank you to David Lindo for sharing such valuable and inspiring information. And remember, 
Next time you're in a town, city, backyard or garden, think about David Lindo's advice. Look up. Nature might only be a glance away. And you can find the links mentioned in this episode at the blog post at awildlife.co.uk forward slash David Lindo. And I'll see you in the next Wild Talk episode. In the meantime, remember, tip the balance in favour of more time enjoying the natural world. And if you're looking for ideas for things to do in the natural world, head over to our website, awildlife.co.uk, for nature events and outdoors activities from around the UK.